Chapter One of the Damnation of Theron Ware. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Damnation of Theron Ware by Harold Frederick. Part One, Chapter One. No such throng had ever before been seen in the building during its eight years of existence. People were wedged together most uncomfortably upon the seats. They stood packed in the aisles and overflowed the galleries. At the back, in the shadows underneath these galleries, they formed broad, dense masses about the doors, through which it would be hopeless to attempt a passage. The light, given out from numerous tin-lined circles of flaring gas-jets arranged on the ceiling, fell full upon a thousand uplifted faces some framed in bonnets or juvenile curls, others bearded or crowned with shining baldness, but all alike under the spell of a dominant emotion which held features in abstracted suspense and focused every eye upon a common objective point. The excitement of expectancy reigned upon each row of countenances, was visible in every attitude, nay, seemed a part of the close, overheated atmosphere itself. An observer, looking over these compact lines of faces, and noting the uniform concentration of eagerness they exhibited, might have guessed that they were watching for either the jury's verdict in some absorbing criminal trial, or the announcement of the lucky numbers in a great lottery. These two expressions seemed to alternate, and even to mingle vaguely, upon the upturned lineaments of the waiting throng. The hope of some unnamed stroke of fortune, and the dread of some adverse decree. But a glance forward at the object of this universal gaze would have sufficed to shatter both hypotheses. Here was neither a court of justice nor a tombola. It was instead the closing session of the annual Nadama Conference of the Methodist Episcopal Church, and the bishop was about to read out the list of ministerial appointments for the coming year. This list was evidently written in a hand strange to him, and the slow, near-sighted old gentleman, having at last sufficiently rubbed the glasses of his spectacles, and then adjusted them over his nose with annoying deliberation, was now silently rehearsing his task to himself, the while the clergymen round about, ground their teeth, and restlessly shuffled their feet in impatience. Upon a closer inspection of the assemblage, there were a great many of these clergymen, a dozen or more dignified, and for the most part elderly, brethren sat grouped about the bishop in the pulpit. As many others, not quite so staid in mien, and indeed, with here and there almost a suggestion of frivolity in their postures, were seated on the steps leading down from this platform. A score of their fellows sat facing the audience, on chairs tightly wedged into the space railed off round the pulpit, and then came five or six pews, stretching across the whole breadth of the church, and almost solidly filled with preachers of the word. There were very old men among these, bent and decrepit veterans, who had known Lorenzo Dow, and had been ordained by elders who remembered Francis Asbury and even Whitefield. They sat now in front places, leaning forward with trembling and misshapen hands behind their hairy ears, waiting to hear their names read out on the superannuated list it might be for the last time. The sight of these venerable fathers in Israel was good to the eyes, conjuring up, as it did, pictures of a time when a plain and homely people 
had been served by a fervent and devoted clergy, by preachers who lacked in learning and polish, no doubt, but who gave their lives without dream of earthly reward to poverty and to the danger and wearing toil of itinerant missions through the rude frontier settlements. These pictures had for their primitive accessories log huts, rough household implements, coarse clothes, and patched old saddles, which told of weary years of journeying. But to even the least sympathetic vision there shone upon them the glorified light of the cross and crown. Reverend survivors of the heroic times, their very presence there, sitting meekly at the altar-rail to hear again the published record of their uselessness and of their dependence upon church charity, was in the nature of a benediction. The large majority of those surrounding these patriarchs were middle-aged men, generally of a robust type, with burly shoulders and bushing beards framing shaven upper lips, and who looked for the most part like honest and prosperous farmers attired in their Sunday clothes. As exceptions to this rule, there were scattered stray specimens of a more urban class, worthies with neatly trimmed whiskers, white neckcloths, and even indications of hair oil all eloquent of citified charges, and now and again the eye singled out a striking and scholarly face, at once strong and simple, and instinctively referred it to the faculty of one of the several theological seminaries belonging to the conference. The effect of these faces as a whole was toward goodness, candor, and imperturbable self-complacency, rather than learning or mental astuteness and curiously enough it wore its pleasantest aspect on the countenances of the older men. The impress of zeal and moral worth seemed to diminish by regular gradations as one passed to younger faces. And among the very beginners, who had been ordained only within the last day or two, this decline was peculiarly marked. It was almost a relief to note the relative smallness of their number, so plainly was it to be seen, that they were not the men their forebears had been. And if those aged, worn-out preachers facing the pulpit had gazed instead backward over the congregation, it may be that here, too, their old eyes would have detected a difference, what at least they would have deemed a decline. But nothing was further from the minds of the members of the first M.E. Church of Tecumseh than the suggestion that they were not an improvement on those who had gone before them. They were undoubtedly the smartest and most important congregation within the limits of the Nadama Conference, and this new church edifice of theirs represented alike a scale of outlay and a standard of progressive taste in devotional architecture, unique in the Methodism of that whole section of the state. They had a right to be proud of themselves, too. They belonged to the substantial order of the community, with perhaps not so many very rich men as the Presbyterians had, but, on the other hand, with far fewer extremely poor folk than the Baptists were encumbered with. The pews in the first four rows of their church rented for one hundred dollars apiece, quite up to the Presbyterian high-water mark, and they now had almost abolished free pews altogether. The oyster suppers, given by their Ladies' Aid Society in the basement of the church during the winter, had established rank among the fashionable events in Tecumseh's social calendar. A comprehensive and satisfied perception of these advantages was uppermost in the minds of this local audience, as they waited for the bishop to begin his reading. They had entertained this bishop and his presiding elders, 
and the rank and file of common preachers in a style which could not have been remotely approached by any other congregation in the conference. Where else, one would like to know, could the bishop have been domiciled in a Methodist house where he might have a sitting-room all to himself, with his bedroom leading out of it? Every clergyman present had been provided for in a private residence, even down to the licensed exhorters, who were not really ministers at all, when you came to think of it, and who might well thank their stars that the conference had assembled among such open-handed people. There existed a dim feeling that these licensed exhorters, an uncouth crew, with country storekeepers and lumbermen, and even a horse-doctor among their numbers, had taken rather too much for granted, and were not exhibiting quite the proper degree of gratitude over their reception. But a more important issue hung now imminent in the balance, was Tecumseh to be fairly and honorably rewarded for her hospitality by being given the pastor of her choice? All were agreed, at least among those who paid pew-rents, upon the great importance of a change in the pulpit of the first M.E. church. A change in persons must of course take place, for their present pastor had exhausted the three-year maximum of the itinerant system, but there was needed much more than that for a handsome and expensive church building like this, and with such a modern and go-ahead congregation, it was simply a vital necessity to secure an attractive and fashionable preacher. They had held their own against the Presbyterians these past few years only by the most strenuous efforts, and under the depressing disadvantage of a minister who preached dreary, out-of-date sermons, and who lacked even the most rudimentary sense of social distinctions. The Presbyterians had captured the new cashier of the Adams County Bank, who had always gone to the Methodist church in the town he came from, but now was lost solely because of this tiresome old fossil of theirs, and there were numerous other instances of the same sort, scarcely less grievous. That this state of things must be altered was clear. The unusually large local attendance upon the sessions of the conference had given some of the more guileless of visiting brethren a high notion of Tecumseh's piety, and perhaps even the most sophisticated stranger never quite realized how strictly it was to be explained by the anxiety to pick out a suitable champion for the fierce Presbyterian competition. Big gatherings assembled evening after evening to hear the sermons of those selected to preach, and the church had been almost impossibly crowded at each of the three Sunday services. Opinions had naturally differed a good deal during the earlier stages of this scrutiny, but after last night's sermon there could be but one feeling. The man for Tecumseh was the Reverend Theron Ware. The choice was an admirable one, from points of view much more exalted than those of the local congregation. You could see Mr. Ware sitting there at the end of the row inside the altar rail, the tall, slender young man with the broad white brow, thoughtful eyes, and features molded into that regularity of strength which used to characterize the American senatorial type in those faraway days of clean-shaven faces and moderate incomes before the war. The bright-faced, comely, and vivacious young woman in the second side pew was his wife, and Tecumseh noted with approbation that she knew how to dress. There were really no two better or worthier people in the building than this young couple who sat waiting along with the rest to hear their fate. But unhappily, 
they had come to know of the effort being made to bring them to Tecumseh, and their simple pride in the triumph of the husband's fine sermon had become swallowed up in a terribly anxious conflict of hope and fear. Neither of them could maintain a satisfactory show of composure as the decisive moment approached. The vision of translation from poverty and obscurity to such a splendid post as this, truly it was too dazzling for tranquil nerves. The tedious bishop had at last begun to call his roll of names, and the good people of Tecumseh mentally ticked them off, one by one, as the list expanded. They felt that it was like this bishop, an unimportant and commonplace figure in Methodism, not to be mentioned in the same breath with Simpson and Janes and Kingsley, that he should begin with the backwoods counties, and thrust all these remote and pitifully rustic stations ahead of their own metropolitan charge. To these they listened but listlessly, indifferent alike to the joy and to the dismay which he was scattering among the divines before him. The announcements were being doled out with stumbling hesitation. After each one, a little half-rustling movement through the crowded rows of clergymen passed mute judgment upon the cruel blow this brother had received, the reward justly given to this other, the favoritism by which a third had profited. The presiding elders, whose work all this was, stared with gloomy and impersonal abstraction down upon the rows of black-coated humanity spread before them. The ministers returned this fixed and perfunctory gaze with pale, set faces, only feebly masking the emotions which each new name stirred somewhere among them. The bishop droned on laboriously, mispronouncing words and repeating himself as if he were reading a catalogue of unfamiliar seeds. First Church of Tecumseh, Brother Abram G. Tisdale. There was no doubt about it. These were actually the words that had been uttered. After all this outlay, all this lavish hospitality, all this sacrifice of time and patience in sitting through those sermons, to draw from the grab-bag nothing better than a Tisdale. A hum of outraged astonishment, half-grown, half-wrathful snort, bounded along from pew to pew throughout the body of the church. An echo of it reached the bishop, and so confused him that he haltingly repeated the obnoxious line. Every local eye turned as if by intuition to where the calamitous Tisdale sat, and fastened malignantly upon him. Could anything be worse? This brother Tisdale was past fifty, a spindling, rickety, gaunt old man, with a long horse-like head and vacantly solemn eyes, who kept one or the other of his hands continually fumbling his bony jaw. He had been withdrawn from routine service for a number of years, doing a little insurance canvassing on his own account, and also traveling for the book concern. Now that he wished to return to parochial work, the richest prize in the whole list, Tecumseh, was given to him, to him who had never been asked to preach at a conference, and whose archaic nasal singing of Greenland's icy mountains had made even the licensed exhorters grin. It was too intolerably dreadful to think of. An embittered whisper to the effect that Tisdale was the bishop's cousin ran round from pew to pew. This did not happen to be true, but indignant Tecumseh gave it entire credit. 
The throngs about the doors dwindled as by magic, and the aisles cleared. Local interest was dead, and even some of the pew-holders rose and made their way out. One of these murmured audibly to his neighbors, as he departed, that his pew could now be had for sixty dollars. So it happened that when, a little later on, the appointment of Theron Ware to Octavius was read out, none of the people of Tecumseh either noted or cared. They had been deeply interested in him so long as it seemed likely that he was to come to them, before their clearly expressed desire for him had been so monstrously ignored. But now what became of him was no earthly concern of theirs. After the doxology had been sung and the conference formally declared ended, the wares would fain have escaped from the flood of handshakings and boisterous farewells which spread over the front part of the church. But the clergymen were unusually insistent upon demonstrations of cordiality among themselves, the more, perhaps, because it was evident that the friendliness of their local hosts had suddenly evaporated, and, of all the men in the world, the priest incumbent of the Octavius pulpit now bore down upon them with noisy effusiveness and defied evasion. Brother Ware, we have never been introduced, but let me clasp your hand, and Sister Ware, I presume, yours too. He was a portly man, who held his head back so that his face seemed all jowl and mouth and sandy chin-whisker. He smiled broadly upon them with half-closed eyes and shook hands again. I said to him, he went on with loud pretense of heartiness, the minute I heard your name called out for our dear Octavius, I must go over and introduce myself. It will be a heavy cross to part with those dear people, Brother Ware, but if anything could wean me to the notion, so to speak, it would be the knowledge that you are to take up my labors in their midst. Perhaps, ah, perhaps they are just a trifle close in money matters, but they come out strong on revivals. They'll need a good deal of stirring up about parsonage expenses, but oh, such seasons of grace as we've experienced there together. He shook his head and closed his eyes altogether, as if transported by his memories. Brother Ware smiled faintly in decorous response, and bowed in silence. But his wife resented the unctuous beaming of content on the other's wide countenance, and could not restrain her tongue. "'You seem to bear up tolerably well under this heavy cross, as you call it,' she said sharply. "'The will of the Lord, Sister Ware, the will of the Lord,' he responded, disposed for the instant to put on his pompous manner with her and then deciding to smile again as he moved off. The circumstance that he was to get an additional three hundred dollars yearly in his new place was not mentioned between them. By a mutual impulse the young couple, when they had at last gained the cool open air, crossed the street to the side where overhanging trees shaded the infrequent lamps, and they might be comparatively alone. The wife had taken her husband's arm and pressed closely upon it as they walked. For a time no word passed, but finally he said, in a grave voice, "'It is hard upon you, poor girl.' Then she stopped short, buried her face against his shoulder, and fell to sobbing. He strove, with gentle, whispered remonstrance, to win her from this mood, and after a few moments she lifted her head and they resumed their walk, she wiping her eyes as they went. "'I couldn't keep it in a minute longer,' she said, 
catching her breath between phrases. Oh, why do they behave so badly to us, Theron? He smiled down momentarily upon her face as they moved along and patted her hand. Somebody must have the poor places, Alice, he said consolingly. I am a young man yet, remember. We must take our turn and be patient, for we know all things work together for the good. And your sermon was so head and shoulders above the others, she went on breathlessly. Everybody said so. And Mrs. Parshall heard it so direct that you were to be sent here. And I know she told everybody how much I was lotting on it. I wish we could go right off tonight without going to her house. I shall be ashamed to look her in the face. And of course she knows we're poked off to that miserable Octavius. Why, Theron, they tell me it's a worse place even than we've got now. Oh, not at all, he put in reassuringly. It has grown to be a large town. Oh, quite twice the size of Tyre. It's a great Irish place, I've heard. Our own church seems to be a good deal run down there. We must build it up again. And the salary is better, a little. But he too was depressed, and they walked on toward their temporary lodging in a silence full of mutual grief. It was not until they had come within sight of this goal that he prefaced by a little sigh of resignation these further words. Come, let us make the best of it, my girl. After all, we are in the hands of the Lord. Oh, don't, Theron, she said hastily. Don't talk to me about the Lord tonight. I can't bear it. End of chapter 1